Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. While many of our podcasts focus on what happens after someone dies, today we're talking about how the diagnosis and progression of an advanced serious illness affects the entire family. Since so much of what I do in my job is supporting children, teens, and adults after a death, I asked my colleague Mia Nations to join me and share her knowledge and experience of working with families who are facing an illness that will end the life of someone they love. Welcome, Mia. Thank you for being here. Well, hi, Jana. Thanks for inviting me. I gave Mia exactly 24 hours to prepare for this podcast, so (laughs) she is a brave soul with that. Mia, can you talk a little bit about your work with families who are in this situation with an advanced serious illness? I'm working here in the Pathways program at the Dougie Center. And we started this two and a half years ago after hearing from a lot of families who had been coming in the bereavement program that they wished they'd had something that had been supportive for them as they were going through an illness with their person. There's a group for children ages 3 to 11. There's a group for teens ages 12 to 18. There's a group for the caregivers. So these might be parents. They could be grandparents. Yes, we have grandparents, we have parents, we have aunts, we have sometimes friends. We also, at the same time that these three groups are meeting, we have a group for the person, if they're able to come, who has some diagnosis. It's a time when the families can come together and feel supported, feel like someone understands what they're going through. And to be less alone in this experience. It's a very lonely journey, for sure. I know when we were talking a lot about starting Pathways and getting that, that program going, We had a lot of discussions about how will this be the same or how will it be different than our groups for families who have had someone die. Are there any differences or similarities that really stand out to you? Our colleague Rebecca likes to use the example of a waterfall. After a family has had a death, they've gone over the waterfall and they might be scrambling to find their oars, scrambling to upright their canoe and get back in, but no longer is there a mystery about what's going to happen. Where the families who have a medical diagnosis, they're in their canoes and they're going toward this waterfall, but they never know when the waterfall is going to appear. They know it's out there somewhere. They don't know how deep the drop is going to be. They don't know if they're going to survive it. I mean, they have all of these anxieties. and, And I feel like everybody in the family is in their own canoe And yet they're a pod, you know, they're traveling together. But there's just a lot of aloneness, even within the family, I think, with what they're dealing with and the unknowns. Before the death, you keep having a new normal. And then as soon as you get into that new normal, it changes. In our bereavement groups, 
people talk about how life has changed very dramatically. And not that grief is static ever, because grief is always changing, but the circumstances of what has created the change are static. My dad died of a heart attack in 2009, or my mom died of cancer in 2012. That is when everything started to change. But for these families, it seems like the changes are always changing, and there's nothing to anchor their experience to. That's how I would describe it, that there's no anchor at that point. And sometimes people can just feel like they're free-falling and not knowing what the landing's going to be like. I think in our society, we don't do a very good job culturally in, one, talking about death or grief, for that matter. seems like the language that we do have around it is either very medical or very military. The war on cancer, Mm. they're fighting the good fight. And we don't have a lot of language for families around talking about death and meaning and feelings, even in the same conversation. You know, we're coming off of a time in our society where death was whisked away as soon as the person died, and it usually happened in a hospital. We're moving away from that. We're moving back into families being present and people choosing to die in their homes. And with that language, the the militaristic fighting Mm -hmm. language, it always makes me wonder, where's there room for somebody who has an illness to be in acceptance, although I don't really like that word, or in recognition that they're not going to get through this illness. They are going to die. And where's the room for preparing for that or talking with kids about that if there's such a push to fight? Yes, I I think that's part of the, the issue that I see is that as soon as someone starts talking about the fact that they're dying, everybody feels like they've given up. You have to talk about hope. That's the only thing you can talk about. You have to talk about a cure. And maybe hope has a different face. Maybe it's not about a cure. Maybe hope is about being a part of your family in a really present way for as long as you can. Maybe that's the hope. I think hope does change over the course of someone's illness. So it seems so important to provide that permission for the person who is dying and permission for their family members to have these types of conversations and to create that presence. I think that's what I really see in the families that come to Pathways is they're really wanting to have those conversations. They're really wanting to have those kind of connections. Yet we've allowed as a society the medical field to dictate what the process of dying is instead of the families coming back and saying, wait, maybe I don't want to do chemo or maybe I will do chemo, but I want to be with my family. I want to have conversations that are meaningful. And that's the part where I feel like we don't have the language to know how to do that. Families are looking for that. Families are looking for ways to connect and to, I think, even be able to have that conversation around, I'm dying. What would it be like for a teen or for a child If their parent who was dying said, I know it's going to be hard and I'm going to miss you, but you're going to be okay. And I believe in you because. And so often that's what kids and teens talk about missing the most. That person, that parent or that sibling being their biggest support person and to have had that conversation or be able to capture that sentiment of even in my death, you are going to be okay. And I know that because of these things that I see in you. Mm. Seems like a huge gift. 
It is. I really think that families connecting is just one of the biggest things they want to do. But when everybody's trying to protect everyone. The teens are trying to protect their parents. The adult who's still going to be here is trying to protect the adult who's not going to be here. The adult who's dying doesn't want to bring on any more anguish to their family. So no one talks about it. And yet everybody wants to talk about it. When they come to the groups, whether they're a teen or you know, an adult, that's what they talk about. They talk about, I try to protect my family. I, that's something that surprised me, I have to say, is the, the amount of tenderness and beauty as they talk about what the process has been like once they're able to reach that point of really talking to each other. And as the person is dying, they talk about it was the saddest thing and yet it was the most beautiful thing because they're finally able to connect on a heart level and get away from what society has said they were supposed to be focusing on. Yeah, it seems like that private public face that so many people experience, whether someone has died or someone is dying, of what they can show to other people and what they keep to themselves. But it seems like in these moments, maybe that piece that we keep to ourselves comes forward and we show that to the people that we love. I think it happens toward the very end, and I think a few people are able to have it happen earlier in the process, I think it makes a big difference. I think those private parts within us are very, very deeply private. Parents are afraid to let their children and teens see their emotion. It's an emotional time. And instead of being afraid of tears that might come up, what if we normalized it and said, you know, this is really hard. And if the adult could take that lead, then it might help the child to say, okay, I can cry sometimes too. And, and the adult could cry and say, I'm going to be okay, but I'm just feeling sad right now. It's not they're doing something bad or wrong, and yet everybody keeps trying to protect everyone. Right now, we've been talking a lot about when it gets right towards the end, but mm -hmm. I'm thinking about backing up a little bit for when the diagnosis first happens or people are first trying to understand what's going on. What ideas or suggestions do you have for including kids and teens in that? Such a tumultuous time. There's so many feelings that are coming up and so many unknowns. And one thing I would encourage parents to do is talk to their children as soon as possible. You may not have all the answers. You may not know what's going to happen, but children know, they can sense that something has shifted in the family. And a lot of times kids are susceptible to creating stories that aren't even true. So bringing a sense of truth to, to what they know at an age-appropriate level for whatever age your child is. And what you're doing, too, is you're building trust with that child, that you're going to tell them things even if it's a hard thing. You may not have all the answers right away, but you can tell them that when you know more, you will let them know. And keep them a part of that conversation. Tell them we're doing everything we can and the doctors are doing everything we can, but we don't know what's gonna happen. And I know I've heard for some, particularly from some teenagers, but also from some younger kids, where somebody in their life was ill, they knew they had cancer, they knew they had some type of diagnosis, but they never really got how serious it was and they didn't realize how short the time might be. And looking back, they say, if I had known my mom only had three months to live, I would have made much different choices about my life. 
because I might not have played softball. I might not have gone on that band trip. I might have stayed home and spent more time if I had all the information. I think sometimes we forget that children and teens also need to have their process. Teens after the death, I hear a lot about guilt. They feel like they could have done something to make it better or guilt that if they had been around more, maybe things would have been different or spent more time and think that a lot can happen before the death to alleviate the guilt that might otherwise be present after a death. And a big part of that for me is it's not so much what the kids and teens decide to do. That's, it's not irrelevant, but it's almost secondary to having the choice. So a child who has all the information might decide, I really can't go see my dad in the hospital. I just can't. I can call and we can FaceTime, but I can't go into the hospital. And later on, the child might say, I kind of wish I had gone, but I I know I just couldn't. Mm -hmm. It's so different than a child who says, nobody would let me go Mm -hmm. because they said I couldn't handle it. There's just a different intensity of anger on top of some regret. And it seems it's easier to carry regret that we chose. The other thing that comes to mind is and things that are written and, you know, our, even our podcast so far, we focus so much on what do the kids and the teens need? And there's a lot written out there about what do the, does the person with the illness need? But the group of folks that you work with, the caregivers who are caring for kids and teens and possibly caring for the person who's dying, they don't get a lot of attention. What are some things that you have learned about what they need? Yeah, well, the caregivers are often now doing two roles within the family they might still be trying to work and they're taking care of kids and they feel bad for the kids and they feel bad for the person who's has the medical illness and they there's just an overwhelmedness i think the way to support that person support the caregiver often we say i'm here if you need anything or let me know if you need something but then that puts the onus on the caregiver to think of what they need and then to make that phone call. And it's more helpful to say, I'm going to the grocery store tomorrow and I'd be happy to pick up some things for you. Or I'm making a pot of soup and I'm making extra. Can I bring it over for your family? Or I know you've been spending a lot of time at the hospital. Can I pick up your kids for an evening and bring them over to my house? If you could give some concrete things that you would be willing to do, then the caregiver could in that moment go, oh, that's exactly what I need. Thank you. So really similar to the things that people who have had someone die might say, please offer something concrete. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for me to reach out to you. Are there things that are unique to caregivers in the situation of the things that they struggle with and think about and worry about? What I've heard is caregivers really don't like it when people say, oh, you're so strong because they don't feel strong. They feel sad and they feel a lot of things, but they don't feel strong. They're just doing the things that they have to do. So I think watching the way you say things and not putting your evaluation on what is happening for them, so simple really, but just being a presence, a listening presence, being that safe place where they can release emotions, but don't feel like you have to fix it or don't feel like you have to make it better because you can't fix it. You can't make it better. So once you let that go, then you can be there and you can listen to what they're saying and listen to what they're feeling. And they often say they just need a safe place to express 
what they're feeling with, without saying, oh, but you're doing so good, or you're so strong, or trying to compliment them in some way about what we see them doing. Mm -hmm. We might often be thinking, if I was in that position, I don't know what I would do. So mm -hmm. I'm just in awe of all the things that this person is able to, to manage and to hold. You know, over and over again, I feel like our podcast could be distilled down into the same thing, <laughs> which is be present and mm -hmm. listen exactly. and don't put our opinions on other mm -hmm. people. All that to say, it's really hard to just sit and be a witness. It is hard. That's something that I've had to learn myself is I can't make this any better but I can listen and I can, and I can see people just releasing their emotions. They come into this room where we are right now and they, they just let it out. And, and maybe they haven't said some of the things they're saying to anybody. And it's, you could just tell it's like a pressure cooker and the, the release valve just went off. They finally got to say it in a room where they didn't have to protect anyone. They didn't have to put on a face. Another thing I would say happens to people a lot is people want to offer medical advice and they want to offer opinions, medical opinions. And have you read about this? Have you tried this? Yes. You should contact Dr. So-and-so. Or my cousin's wife's next door neighbor's best friend had the same thing and this is what they did and this is what happened to them. No two people's journey is the same, and they, I, people who have an advanced serious illness have had so many medical things thrown at them. Probably the last thing they want from their support system, unless they ask you for it. I would not offer medical advice. I would not tell stories of similar things that you know that have happened to other people. If you're somebody out there and you are connected to a child or to a teen, but you're not, like you have a friendship with them or you're a teacher, but you're not actually connected to the adults in their life, what suggestions would you have for them? I think, first of all, just acknowledge that you know what's going on. Don't ignore it. And let them know that you can be there to listen to them if they need someone to talk to. But then if you say that, make sure that you're there. And every once in a while asking in, how are things going? What's happening now? What's currently right. going on? Mm -hmm. Which is a more specific way than just saying, how are you? Which is mm -hmm. a super hard question to answer by asking something specific. Like, I remember your dad was having some scans last week. How did that turn out? Are you still waiting? Yeah, what do you know about that at this point? Again, sort of being that safe place, which is also wouldn't be like, how are you? You know, the way we say it, like, you must really be awful. Or, oh, you poor thing, this must be so hard. You know, wait until they tell you it's hard. And then you go, oh, it's really hard. So again, it just gets back to letting them say whatever they want to say about how they're feeling about it. And keeping in mind that kids and teens, no matter what's happening in their family, are still kids and teens who still need time to be regular kids who go out and have fun and do things and go to movies and eat pizza and have ice cream and all the other things that they do. So if you're a support person, that could be your role. Maybe you're the person who once a week takes kids or teens out to go do something they would have been doing with their family if somebody hadn't been diagnosed with an illness. Exactly. And kids especially kind of move in and out of their grief. There are going to be times when they're really joyful. They're just being kids and, and they're not sad. Teens tend to have a little more, it's with them all the time. They're naturally like pulling maybe back from their family a little bit 
developmentally anyway, and friends take a more important role. So they can often feel really isolated because they don't have friends who understand what they're going through, and yet they're, you know, pulling away a little bit from their family. So it can be particularly lonely for a teen going through that. So helpful to maybe have an adult who's not closely connected to the situation who can be there as someone to acknowledge it and talk with them, but also help them go out and do things in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Mia, for joining us today, especially on such short notice. I'm grateful that Pathways exists, and I'm so grateful for the work that you and Rebecca do for all of the families who are contacting us. And if you uh, would like to learn more about Pathways or more about supporting kids and teens when someone in their life has an advanced serious illness, we have a brand new tip sheet. It's on our website. I'll link to it in the show notes. And soon to come out is a DVD for medical professionals. So keep an eye out on our website for that too. And if you would like to listen to any of our past episodes of our podcast, you can find us in iTunes, in Stitcher, any other podcast platform that you listen to, or on our website, dougy.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.